everybody. I'm Jacob De Toni, and this is the FDI podcast. The protests of the past few months have been a wake-up call for Hong Kong. The city has been a beacon of stability and modernity for decades, and people prefer to ignore the expiry date of the one country, two systems model, giving it special status and jurisdiction within China until 2047. Everybody assumed or hoped that eventually nothing would change. Well, it looks like things may change as Beijing becomes more assertive with its claims over the city-state. The investment community itself cannot ignore the issue any longer. Hong Kong has been flourishing as an offshore financial center. A special jurisdiction made it a choice of preference for both international investors looking at the Chinese market and investors from mainland China willing to access the global markets. Is the current turmoil now set to tarnish Hong Kong's reputation as the main investment hub in the region? Today at the FDI podcast, three foreign professionals that have been working and living in Hong Kong for years will give us a direct insight into the feelings of the city's financial community. I'm also joined in our city of London by Kevin Lone, a senior economist with London-based macro research consultancy, Faithholm. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. So let me start with you. Do you believe that Hong Kong's days as a global hub for investment in and out of the region are limited? Um, I think it would be far too early to call uh, the end of their role as a financial hub. Uh, for several years, Hong Kong has been uh, top of the charts when it comes to uh, money raised by IPOs. Uh, plays an extremely important role for money, both getting into China for foreign companies who want to access what's an extremely large and, and still pretty fast-growing market. And at the same time, it also serves as a convenient way for Chinese firms who are, who are trying to expand and internationalize. Um, also is a, a useful place for uh, new found wealthy Chinese citizens in mainland China somewhere to store, uh, store that wealth and kind of with a pegged currency and, and far more um, independent judiciary, the, the money stored there is, is safer. So I think uh, these sort of network effects that have been built up over a very long time. Uh, it's very hard for, to dislodge them, but uh, clearly the current situation is troubling and, and, and uh, kind of competitors will be thinking of this as an opportunity uh, to take some of, of Hong Kong's market share. Absolutely. And uh, Singapore, for example, is already trying to lure some of that capital they may be considering uh, to leave uh, Hong Kong. Um, I spoke to Alberto Vettoretti, who is the managing director of uh, uh, Design Shira, who is uh, an advisory firm based in Hong Kong uh, and advising uh, investors and other clients on uh, investment opportunities in the, in, the, in the city. And this is what he told me about this very specific issue. My name is Alberto Vettoretti, and I'm the managing partner of Design Shira and Associates. Obviously, um, Hong Kong um, reputation has been uh, impacted from uh, what we have seen, um, and uh, we are now 15 weeks into this uh, uh, protest. Um, so, if you if you look at um, um, how Hong Kong is being uh, perceived, um, and especially after uh, Moody's uh, downgraded uh, Hong Kong's reputation from um, stable to, to, to negative, um, there have been quite a few uh, question marks raised by uh, clients on uh, uh, Hong Kong still being a financial hub uh, of choice or, or not. Hong Kong um, indeed built um, uh, its, its fame uh, and um, um, best gateway to, to China uh, on rule of law, on uh, independent uh, judiciary, um, low corruption, low tax, 
um, high financial freedoms. So um, if all this now come under scrutiny, uh, obviously many multinational corporations will uh, ask some, some questions about whether Hong Kong is still the best place to, uh, uh, to, to locate uh, companies to invest into China or uh, Asia. So the number of companies are closing down in Hong Kong is on the rise. I think this year will be in excess of 150,000. Um, but uh, the origin of this is to be found um, uh, a bit uh, um, uh, earlier on uh, in the years and not necessarily in, uh, um, uh, in the recent happenings. Mm -hmm. I think at the same time also our clients are looking at Asia as a whole uh, in terms of expansion, uh, in terms of um, what uh, Asia will become, um, uh, in, in terms of uh, where their clients are, where the supply chain is moving. So I think they're looking at the whole picture right now, um, looking still at Hong Kong, but considering a potentially more Singapore uh, in terms of, of an alternative, and even more so now, even what is happening uh, in Hong Kong. So uh, we do lots of um, uh, advisory in terms of where it's good to, to be based these days, based um, not just um, 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 depending on what Hong Kong is going through at the moment, but uh, in the larger picture of um, uh, China plus one, uh, Trump uh, and uh, uh, China war and uh, other considerations uh, for the company's development. Having said that, I think Hong Kong is still uh, extremely important. Numbers uh, tell us uh, which Hong Kong is a, is, is a location of choice for uh, Chinese IPOs, for example. I think about 70% of uh, Chinese uh, uh, IPOs still take place in Hong Kong, uh, as well as um, uh, overseas bonds um, issued by uh, Chinese and foreign companies in Hong Kong. Um, so Hong Kong, I don't think, will, uh, in the short term, lose its, um, um, its advantages as, uh, as a financial hub, in spite of the fact that Shenzhen is growing, uh, Shanghai is growing. But I think Hong Kong has uh, curbed uh, itself uh, uh, still an niche role uh, in, in China and in Asia. So, Kevin, I, I, I like what Alberto says because uh, it gives a lot of context to what is happening in the financial business community in Hong Kong. Obviously, uh, this protest, this political turmoil is uh, or will, uh, will uh, um, take a toll on the city, but there are certain dynamics, external factors that are already uh, questioning or challenging Hong Kong as a dominant financial investment hub in the region. For example, obviously the rise of ASEAN with Singapore at, at its core, um, but also, for example, international compliance standards that are tightening uh, in major centers like Hong Kong, the same Singapore, uh, which in a way pushes away some of the kind of more, the dodger, if you may, capital. Mm. Um, what, what, what's your feeling about this? Um, yeah, no, I think I would agree with a lot of uh, what both of you said. Uh, so I guess there's two different aspects, or I'd think about it in, in two separate ways. So on the one hand, for foreign firms accessing China is is one thing. And so that it's easier if you're a company, a multinational who's set up in Hong Kong and that's kind of your regional headquarters uh, to move to Singapore, for example, which offers a fairly uh, similar set of institutional structures and um, without less of the political risk, it seems currently. Um, but then at the same time, Hong Kong's rise is uh, linked, obviously, uh, to, to the rise of mainland China as a, as a great economic engine. 
So uh, Chinese firms themselves um, perhaps have less control over where to go. And the Chinese state, uh, for sure, I think would um, uh, do all of it can, all it can to maintain uh, Hong Kong as a premier financial hub. And actually, I spoke uh, to another economist based in Hong Kong, uh, Carlos Carlos Casanova, who is uh, the senior economist at the credit credit insurer Coface, and uh, he also has a very insightful view on this. Mm -hmm. Yes, so I'm Carlos Casanova. I'm Coface's economist for Asia Pacific. You hear anecdotal evidence of capital moving outside Hong Kong. You you do have companies that... um, perhaps are considering to relocate out of Hong Kong into Singapore, but mind you, this was a trend that was taking place before the protests. So protests might have helped to sort of tilt the balance in the favor of a move. Mm-hmm. Um, increasingly, you know, uh, a lot of companies that are interested in the domestic market in China have um, their operational base on the mainland and their sort of financial kind of headquarter in Hong Kong. Um, and Southeast Asia is becoming a more attractive market, so a lot of them want to have sort of closer presence by relocating some of their operations from Hong Kong, which might no longer be as necessary to Singapore. So this was ongoing, but perhaps as a result of, of what's happening with the protests, some companies might have you know, accelerated or perhaps you know, made up their minds to, to move um, part of their operation to Singapore. So there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. If you look at um, evidence on the financing front, so in terms of capital outflows, um, the Hang Seng Index, which is the most evident sort of gauge of capital um, outflows and inflows into the city, and also the monetary base, we don't see a significant change yet. So there is a very big impact on the domestic economy, but that's not translated into an impact in the financial sector as of yet. Of course, one would expect such an event to have reputational damages. Um, Whether these are more or less permanent will depend on how the situation is handled going forward. So the, the guys that are really working sort of on the ground, uh, like sign, signing deals, a lot of those, or perhaps running your manufacturing facility if, if you're a manufacturing company, mm-hmm. a lot of those um, sort of headcounts have gradually been moving to the mainland, closer to the to, to the facility or, or the markets. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, uh, some of the people that had a more regional function in Hong Kong have looked to relocate to Singapore as Southeast Asia becomes a more attractive market um, for companies around the world. That doesn't mean that Hong Kong is no longer going to be a financial center for mainland China. In fact, Hong Kong continues to be a very important um, financial center for China because China has a closed uh, capital account. So insofar as the capital account remains closed, Hong Kong will continue to be China's uh, gateway to the world, to put it this way. Okay. A couple of statistics, you know, Chinese companies uh, are dependent on Hong Kong for I, I, um, initial public offerings, IPOs. This is the largest market for them in, uh, globally. Um, 60% of um, outbound foreign direct investment goes via Hong Kong because the human capital and the facilities and the legal frameworks are here, not in Shanghai or in Shenzhen. So Hong Kong is still a very important financial center for China. And that's why, in my opinion, they, they are being cautious and are being mindful about how the situation is handled. So interesting what he says about uh, this connection between uh, Hong Kong as a main gateway uh, for Chinese companies to global markets and the way Beijing is handling the, the, the situation. 
he says that they're being cautious. Obviously, the perception is that it's, it's their degree of, it's their own way to being cautious. Uh, but maybe it is, because obviously we know that China has not refrained from cracking down on uh, on protests or dissent in other regions, like imagine like Tibet or uh, Xinjiang with the whole with the whole uh, Uyghur problem. Uh, but do you believe, Kevin, that uh, the fact that this uh, Hong Kong is such an important center for Chinese companies uh, willing to access global markets will play any role? in the way this political situation unfolds? I think, yes, for sure. So clearly, uh, uh, Shanghai and Shenzhen have become more important and um, uh, there's more financial activity now occurring on the mainland and and authorities would probably be trying to encourage that. Uh, But for uh, various reasons that uh, we've we've kind of touched on, principally the closed capital account and then uh, the existing uh, pool of human capital and uh, the institutional framework as well in Hong Kong, uh, it remains uh, incredibly important. So I think uh, for sure that's playing on the authorities' minds, but uh, there's also other uh, factors. So in terms of some of the domestic um, uh, considerations that you mentioned, principally Xinjiang, I think uh, it's easier to get away with things on the mainland than it is in Hong Kong. There's a freer press um, even something as simple as um, many people in in foreign countries have visited Hong Kong or have a friend who's worked there. I think that would also be um, adding to to their cautious approach. Um, and finally, I think also the situation with Taiwan is also uh, fairly critical here. So uh, Hong Kong has the one country, two systems framework, which essentially is the model that had been promoted for Taiwan as well. Um, and it seems reunifying Taiwan in a meaningful sense is a priority. Um, Anything that is too uh, forceful or um, perceived as being uh, heavy-handed in Hong Kong, I think, is only going to play into the hands of um, people in Taiwan who want to maintain a a greater degree of separation from the mainland. Uh, And so I think that's also playing uh, quite a big role. Right. So obviously they have to to thread very carefully. Um, But... It's also interesting that both uh, Alberto and uh, Carlos, that they've been living and working in Hong Kong for, for many years. Uh, they, they see that there is a anecdotal evidence of uh, uh, mounting uh, discomfort among the, the, the international community of uh, foreign investors. And actually, there is some early evidence that uh, um, this, is, this is taking a toll on the, on, on the country business environment as a whole. Um, according to, to our database of uh, Greenfield Foreign Investment Projects, the number of uh, new foreign investment projects in 2019, in the first eight months of 2019, is at the lowest since uh, 2006, which is already uh, meaningful. As Alberto mentioned, uh, uh, the dissolution of companies is expected to reach this year 100,000, which doesn't necessarily mean, again, there are many dormant companies, there are many financial holdings. It, we have to take this, this figure carefully, but again, it's a, it's a record high level. And uh, if you look at more like day-to-day indicators, business, business confidence uh, sank to a seven-and-a-half-year low in, uh, in September. So there are signs, obviously, that uh, this, this, this uh, uh, protest is affecting uh, the economy and the financial center as a whole. But at the same time, if you look at the Hansen in- Index, as Carlo mentioned, uh, the index, the stock index is uh, uh, hanging on in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this year, we, we are still seeing uh, plenty of companies that, you know, pushing through IPOs uh, on, on, the, on the market and issuing bonds. Um, so that part of the story is still there. 
And uh, we'll probably continue to stay there because, again, much of this capital is Chinese capital trying to access global markets and they, they haven't got any alternative, or, uh, or at least they got alternatives, but Hong Kong is the more similar culturally uh, to, their, to, the, you know, to their ways of doing business. So it's the easiest, uh, the easiest guess in a way. But you mentioned also human capital, human capital and access to human capital. Obviously, this has been one of the key pillars of the success of Hong Kong as a financial center. And many of, much of this human capital uh, is made up by high-skilled foreigners living and working in Hong Kong. So I caught up with uh, uh, Professor Julien Chasse, who is a law professor at the City University of Hong Kong. And I asked him about uh, what is the feeling of the expat community uh, during these uh, turbulent days. Julien Chef, and I'm a professor at the City University of Hong Kong. I think you have a majority of um, expats who are increasingly worried, but really worried. Worried in the sense that they are not panicking, they are not leaving the, the country, they are not leaving Hong Kong, you know, immediately. But, you know, when I spoke to, to many friends who are in different um, businesses, they, they, they're all caught by surprise by what's been happening. They, I think, all feel disappointed by the government's uh, lack of reaction. I mean, the government's incapacity to, to fix the, the problem, the crisis, promptly. Yeah. And I think everybody is seeing that, you know, kind of not really increasing in, in intensity, but, but these protests now are taking place every week, and they are violent. And... And, and I'm sure you understand that many expats, you know, came to Hong Kong for, for many reasons, ranging from, you know, money, low taxation, but it also includes safety, um, stability. Uh, and for now, it's still anecdotal, but, but some people are already living. So I wouldn't be surprised, for instance, if now uh, there, there would be less expats coming to Hong Kong, like... If I was someone in the, the U.S. or in Europe and my company is offering me to, to relocate to Hong Kong with a salary increase and a better position, you know, I would say it's not the right time for me and my family to move there. Mm -hmm. So I think for now we don't have any statistics, but I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, there is a, a small number of people already living, I guess. And, and I would just also assume that the, the city is losing its, you know, attractivity for those who are um, uh, in, in anywhere else in the world, actually, actually, including China. So, Kevin, experts are feeling the chill, in a way. Um, obviously, I guess also emotions are running very high at the moment in Hong Kong, you know, given the, the recent protests and also, you know, the recent developments that we, we, we follow uh, every day. Uh, but the main problem I see there beyond emotions is that obviously there is this... Uh, erosion of the rule of law, um, which is probably one of the main aspects, has been also one of the main pillars of uh, Hong Kong as a financial center. And now there is this feeling that uh, this increasing Chinese influence will end up eroding uh, uh, one way or another uh, the rule of law uh, in the city. And so I asked again, uh, Julien, uh, he's a law professor, so he has got a very clear picture of what is the rule of law and how it is managed in the country. And so I asked him, uh, uh, what is the real evidence that this rule of law is being uh, eroded? 
And this is what he told me. It, it's more, you know, it's very difficult to identify specific events or decisions that you can then say, well, that is totally against the rule of law. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's more subtle. It's more like a series of events, a number of uh, actions or inactions of, of the government that really strongly suggest that gradually Hong Kong is moving away from the rule of law or from what most people would expect from the rule of law. So, for instance, uh, with all this story about the extradition bill, you know, the point of departure is whether uh, Hong Kong is going to uh, uh, enact this law, which would facilitate the extradition of some potential criminals to mainland China. Mm-hmm. If you just think about how many people could be subject to this law, should, should it as, uh, enter into force, that would be peanuts. But the government, instead of you know opening consultations, instead of saying, "Well, we have heard you and we we you know we we put this uh, project aside," instead of that, the government seemed to to be willing to please China and decided to play tough with the protesters, mm-hmm. play tough and use the police. You know, and the police used the force to an extent that was significant. Um, the government is refusing also that. Uh, investigations on the police actions can take place on an independent basis. So all these small things all together, I think, give the feeling to many that, you know, the rule of law is being uh, eroded, is being gradually affected by by Hong Kong, by a number of things that are happening. But in any case, you know, the government is not doing everything it can to say, look, there is a problem, we put it aside. Uh, The police officer's attitude is questionable. Let's have independent investigation on that. You know, mm. they don't do it this way, and and this is what gives this feeling uh, over the years that you know things are are being gradually eroded. So he he pretty he is pretty direct in confirming that there is an erosion erosion of the rule of law. Uh, the question is, uh, will this affect? Uh, the, 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 the business models, the mind of investors. It wouldn't be the first time investors engage in jurisdictions that are not necessarily the best in terms of uh, protection of human rights, for example, imagine like Dubai. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you think that they will remain engaged as long as profits are there to be made? Um, yeah, well, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. International finance is, is many things and moral is not usually top of the list. So... Uh, it will take a fairly kind of cold and calculated uh, decision, and I think that's what investors would be doing. So I think there's no real possibility of a kind of sudden stop or a mass exodus of, of companies or investors. Um, and at the end of the day, if there's money to be made, there's plenty of people around the world who are, who are willing to, to engage in, in trying to make that money. Um, but I think in terms of the rule of law, clearly what's going to happen and kind of uh, was touched upon in terms of the expats is there's going to be a kind of a slow burn and kind of a marginal impact. The idea that the next person who might have moved to Hong Kong might not move there. Um, clearly, that's different from lots of people all of a sudden departing. Uh, but over time, if you drag that forward for many years, that's going to have sizable impacts. And so instead of kind of continued growth, you're going to get a slow, gradual decline. And through that, you start to lose uh, some of the um, advantages that you get through network effects that I that I hinted at um, earlier, sure, um, which are difficult to measure, but they 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 are very important in places like Hong Kong. But also imagine, for example, Silicon Valley, uh, these network exactly. effects built an empire in a way, <laughs> which is very difficult to replicate. Um, 
Okay, so we are almost running short of time, so let's get to the to the one million uh, Hong Kong dollars question in a way. Uh, what comes next? What how 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 can we get out of this uh, situation that seems to have been uh, uh, slipped uh, out of the hands of uh, Hong Kong and Chinese authorities in the past uh, few weeks? So again, uh, Kofasis Carlos Casanova on this. So in, in my opinion, you need to address the root cause of all the discontent in Hong Kong. And that, of course, is very complex. And it's not uh, a single factor or a single thing. Uh, but you do hear a lot in the press that the Hong Kong government is between, you know, a rock and hard place, meaning that it, they, they really don't know where to go. Well, in my opinion, the rock is not an option. It doesn't let you move. So the only way forward is to go into that hard place, go into a chartered territory, look into... Um, you know, conceding to some of the requests um, and also looking into the root causes of what's driving social discontent in Hong Kong. And of course, there's some very obvious culprits like housing bubble, an increase in income inequality, and just a very, an economy that isn't diversified enough to generate um, employment that is meaningful for a lot of the young population that, you know, is not potentially looking to be employed in the financial sector. Um, so, so I think all of those things are feasible for the Hong Kong government to look into. Um, and, and of course, uh, in, in the long term, it should help to alleviate um, social issues, even if in the short term, perhaps a more political solution will help to, to dissolve some of the, of the of the tensions that have emerged as a result of the way that the protests were handled in, in July and in August when there was a lot of police violence, etc. And now Julian Chas on this. The first thing is uh, I believe that any resolution of the current crisis had to come uh, from within Hong Kong current legal framework. It means if they want to find a resolution of the crisis, it has to be under the one country, two systems formula. That's very important. It means that they have to show that these arrangements can fix a number of problems. And it means that uh, there won't be any resolution if Hong Kong doesn't maintain a high level of autonomy. This is what's at stake. That's the very first important point. Uh, if if the, the high level of autonomy is not maintained, so if the one get to two systems is not maintained in order to fix uh, the crisis, that's going to become even more problematic. There'll be even more tensions. People will become even more radical and the like. Okay. Uh, now, you know what does it mean uh, when you think about the future? Well, it means that at the best, uh, people can get you know stability until 2047. So. Then you could ask me, okay, Julian, so what about 2047? What's going to happen the day after? And and here I would say that no one knows, and that's a matter of concern. You know, if, if there are so many young people protesting on the streets, it's because many of them are just 20 years old, and and they've only been in their 40s when, when Hong Kong loses its autonomy. Or, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen with precisely Hong Kong will lose its autonomy, its currency, and everything or whether things will be maintained because there is no guarantee beyond 2047. I think, you know, in terms of, of social uh, social perspective, that's the main problem. The young people of today, they are, the, they are those who are going to, to have to deal with the, the end of the one country system. And no one knows what's going to happen. So 
I, I cannot even tell you. I, I would assume that, you know, in 2047, if China still needs Hong Kong, the arrangement could be maintained. You know, it could be maintained a bit like now you have uh, within Italy, there is San Marino, which has not such a high degree of autonomy. But I mean, you could have within China a territory that remains subject to specific rules, policies, and the like, you know. But to think about San Marino in Italy, Andorra in Spain, or Monaco for France, that's possible. You could have a Hong Kong still existing in China in 2050 with some specificities, assuming that the rest of China also would be far more economically advanced than now, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and people would, would not lose much, meaning they would not lose their property in Hong Kong, they would not lose their assets, they could still live here. But it's also true that people don't know, and, and, and perhaps China wouldn't be, will not be so developed in 2047. And, and the fear is that then everything could be lost, and Hong Kong could simply become a, a district of Shenzhen or part of China. I mean, no one knows, and I don't know. And I think that for the expats, it really means that no one can plan to stay here beyond 2047. That basically people should be living even even earlier. Kevin, two very distinct and uh, direct uh, statements, opinions from Carlos and uh, Julien. Uh, what's your view? How do we get out of here? What could uh, what might happen in a foreseeable future in Hong Kong? Okay, um, I guess as an economist, uh, forecasts have a way of humbling us. So. Uh, I'll say kind of with a, with a big caveat of it's extremely uncertain, um, having gotten that out of the way. I think I would disagree somewhat with the initial response, which uh, was suggesting that economic factors alone can be a, a solution to the crisis. It seems the depth and depth of popularity and the persistence of the protests over such a long period of time hints at um, uh, dissatisfaction with something more than just high rents, although clearly having more economic opportunities for your people on average, will, will, will help to, to kind of um, facilitate greater societal uh, relations. So I think um, to truly uh, resolve the situation, I think needs, yeah, this is a political uh, question. Um, seems most of the protests uh, dwell on the institutional divergence between the two, uh, between Hong Kong and mainland China. And then there's also a sense of cultural divergence. Um, so I think... Uh, less than 5% of young um, Hong Kongers identify as being Chinese. And this is a number that is, has been steadily drifting down for, 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 many, for, for very many years. Um, so I think anything that essentially reassures um, people in Hong Kong uh, that their special status will be respected and that this is a more permanent solution and that there isn't going to be a kind of gradual uh, absorption into mainland China. I think anything that would sort of... Uh, uh, encourage them to believe that that's the case would, would help to, to alleviate the, the current situation. Um, clearly, there's a very awful downside risk, which is that the, the protests continue for, um, for even longer, perhaps get more violent, uh, and the authorities go in with a, a very heavy-handed crackdown and essentially do the opposite and um, impose a kind of a stricter and more authoritarian uh, form of government immediately. It's not our base case. I think that's still very low probability. It has all sorts of uh, negative economic consequences, which are clear, I'd say, to the to the authorities in Beijing. Um, but for us, it is a possibility and uh, could happen. Yeah, at the end of the story, nobody expected the the recent violence to 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 
have a remote possibility to happen in a place like Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has happened. So I guess uh, at this moment, we should not rule out anything. Um, I personally believe that uh, Julien Chas is, uh, is pretty spot on in addressing the one country, two system issue. I think that any uh, discussion uh, will uh, will not be able to 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 put it aside anymore, to brush it aside anymore, waiting for 2047 to, to, to happen. Um, I believe uh, Beijing sooner or later will be assertive on this and uh, in, in, in the direction of putting an end to the one country, two systems uh, uh, model. But I think that the silver lining could be that in 2047, both Hong Kong and China will be in very different places. Um, you know, we, if we want to be optimistic, we can expect that China will be be more tolerant, be more modern in its in institutions and the way it handles uh, rule of law, for example, uh, or judiciary. Uh, whereas Hong Kong may be always a major financial center, but much more integrated with uh, centers across the bay, like Shenzhen and Macau, in the in the in the vision, this vision of a Greater Bay uh, financial hub, uh, which could be potentially the biggest uh, hub in uh, in the whole world. Uh, so, in a way, Hong Kong uh, is still. Uh, much benefit, like Shenzhen, Hai, Macau, to 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 harvest from uh, China uh, economic uh, uh, tremendous economic growth. So I think that uh, there could be uh, a more a less not a frictionless frictionless has been a word abused in the Brexit negotiations. Right. I don't think there will be a frictionless solution, but it may be uh, less. Uh, uh, troublesome in 2047 than it appears today. Let's hope so. Yes. yes. Well, Kevin, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you very much for your comments. Uh, tell us where people can uh, can follow you and can follow Fathom. Sure. So uh, our best place is our website. So that's uh, fathom-consulting.com. You can find us on Twitter at Fathom Macro. Um, so yeah, hit us up. Okay, awesome. Thanks again. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. You can follow the FDI podcast on our website, fdiintelligence.com slash podcast, and on ACAS and iTunes. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. 
Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.